Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's history hit. Winston Churchill, you may have heard of him. You may have come across him in your studies, in your musings about history. Winston Churchill was a man who liked only the finest things in life. He liked grand houses like Blenheim Palace in which he was born. He liked good food. He liked good cigars, wine, the best company. He liked it all. And that's why this new biography of his longest serving chef is so fascinating. The brilliant Annie Gray, the fantastic food historian and writer, has written a biography of Georgina Landemar, who was a cook that would tolerate the Churchill family. She put up with them for much longer than most of their other domestic staff. And this book is a wonderful exploration of what Churchill and his wife like to eat, how they like to eat it, and how they used food to achieve political and strategic ends. It's really good fun. And you know, I had a good time doing this. It made us convinced that we need to do some cooking in an actual kitchen next time, do some historical cooking. So watch this space. You can watch so many of our interviews, so many of other programs on History Hit TV. It's the world's best digital history channel. Go and check it out. If you use the code POD6, P-O-D-6, as you know, exclusive to podcast listeners. You get to listen to all these podcasts without the ads. You get to watch hundreds of documentaries we've got up on there. Please go to historyhit.tv and use the code POD6. Go and check it out. Enjoy Annie Gray. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Love the book. Tell the, the story that, that you start with is so tragic. Oh God! Isn't tell it? me about tell me about this woman and what her granddaughter found her doing. Her granddaughter, who is still alive and was brilliant when I was writing the book, told me the story of 1977. I think it was uh, Eddie, the granddaughter, would have been, I guess, in her 30s, 40s, and she came upstairs to her grandmother's granny flat, which was built over the garage where she lived with her son-in-law and a daughter. So Eddie goes upstairs finds her grandmother standing at the sink, shredding this set of papers, shredding them into tiny little pieces and then pushing them down the plug hole and running water on them. And Eddie said, what are you doing? And her grandmother said, oh, it's my memoir, but nobody wants to read it. Nobody at all. Your father says no one's interested in my life. So she was methodically pushing this set of handwritten pages with fountain pens, of course the blue ink was running everywhere, down the sink to get rid of her memoir of her life. And Eddie saved 27 pages of it which is all that's left and it covers about the first 13 years of Georgina's life and all of the rest is somewhere probably stuck in a fatberg under Stanmore. And so tell me about Georgina, who was this old lady and what kind of life had she led? Georgina Landemar was well into her 90s by the time she shredded her memoir so she'd lived a very very good life by anybody's standards 
but especially by the standards of someone who was a domestic servant to the rich and famous, it's got to be said. She was born in 1882 in Hertfordshire, uh, grew up very much in a rural upbringing, moved to London with her parents because her father was a coachman, went into service, so on, just the path of so many other girls at that point. But then she married a French chef, she trained herself up, she became a leading society chef in the 1920s and 30s. And then in 1933, she worked for a couple of weekends for Winston Churchill and his wife Clementine. They really adored her cooking, but couldn't afford her. And then when war broke out uh, in 1940, so just after the war broke out, Georgina looked around her, realised that life as a jobbing cook, probably in 1940, all those debutante balls and glorious suppers were going to dry up. So she offered her services to Clementine Churchill, who accepted, and she ended up cooking for the Churchills on and off uh, for about the next 16 years. Mainly on, she cooked for them full time for 14 years, and she was their longest serving cook. So a remarkable life, really very much at the forefront of what was happening in politics during the Second World War and indeed after it. So she was in Downing Street during Churchill's premiership? Yes, so she was there from all the way from when he first became Prime Minister right to 1945 when he left office after the Labour Party got elected and she came back with him to Downing Street in 1951 as well when he was re-elected. So her time with him really did coincide with his time as Prime Minister at one of the most pivotal points really in British history. Did he care about food? A lot. He cared about booze a lot as well. Uh, I would suggest that his girth, which was not insubstantial, was more about what he drank than what he ate. But he loved food. I would say he wasn't particularly or necessarily as discerning as his wife. Clementine was the one who was the gourmet, the really picky one who knew superb food and knew exactly how to cook it as well. Winston was an Edwardian aristocrat though, and like any man of his class, he knew about food, he liked to consume a lot of it, he liked things that were glorious, rich, gorgeously well cooked and the best of everything. But more than that as well, he used food, and especially dinner party food, as a tool for diplomacy. So for him, the food was important, but everything around the food was even more important. It would be unthinkable to put on a bad dinner because no one would come again. And especially at the point in the 1930s when Georgina first started cooking for him when he was in what's known as his wilderness years, those were the years when he was putting together alliances, colluding with people, inviting his cronies and sometimes people who disagreed with him as well down to Chartwell to host these extraordinary weekends where everyone would get together and argue and debate and put together policy really over the dinner table. So the food was absolutely vital and during the war it became even more important because that was a time of rationing. So if you knew you could go over to Winston Churchill's house and have a really good dinner and that meant you'd be inveigled into discussing policy, well it was worth it for the quail. So are you suggesting that Winston Churchill didn't have to obey the laws of rationing during the war? He had to obey the laws of rationing on paper in the same way that everybody had to obey the laws of rationing on paper. But just as Mr and Mrs Smith living out in Royston would have rabbits and perhaps keep a pig and their own hens and grow their own and also ask their friends for various things they were growing. So Churchill had the same kind of networks. It's just that where Mr and Mrs Smith in Royston have a small vegetable garden and grow a few carrots, Winston Churchill had Chartwell, which was a large country estate, and Chequers, and where Mr and Mrs Smith are being perhaps given, I don't know, a couple of sausages from their friend's pig, Winston Churchill is being sent sides of venison from Balmoral, from the king. So his access to things beyond the ration was very, very large. 
And in addition to that, there were also diplomatic coupons and diplomatic points as well. So he was genuinely entitled to extra stuff. And he got sent gifts, so all sorts of things. On one occasion, a primary school full of children all sent him an egg each from their hens, all with their names on. So they all got sent a signed book back again, and, and he had 24 eggs. So before we keep talking about him, let's talk more about Georgina. What, what was her life like? What, what sort of what conditions was she working under? Let's, let's talk about the war years. The war years were, I think, very, very stressful, obviously, for everybody who lived through them, regardless of whether or not they were working at Downing Street, because death surrounded people, there were bombs falling, all the usual things that go into the war. For her, it was doubly difficult, because Winston and Clementine Churchill were just, they weren't brilliant employers. Uh, he was known for his erratic hours and for being very, very demanding on his staff, all of them, secretaries and domestic staff. And Clementine lived on her nerves, so she was frequently frayed, very, very stressed uh, and prone to sort of outbursts. So as employers, they'd already lost a lot of servants leading up to this point. And after the war, they became blacklisted by pretty much every employment agency in London. So they weren't fantastic to work for. On the other hand, if, like Georgina, you worked for them and you got on with them, then it was fantastic. So she was very, very loyal to them and she did get on with them. She lived at Downing Street uh, in the rooms above the sort of Downing, the main house. There still are, there's sort of rooms in the attic. Um, but the family then had an extra bit built for them, what became known as the Downing Street Annex after bombs fell in the back garden and smashed through the kitchen. So she also probably had rooms in the annex. So kind of shuttling between two sites. They also regularly went to Checkers, so she would shuttle as well over to Checkers to go and cook. So three sites, anywhere they were visiting, she might go with them, but usually not. And the food had to be cooked in the Downing Street kitchen, in the kitchen at the annex. Churchill would then change his mind as to where he was dining. So if the food had been cooked one place, it would have to get to the other place. So the, the car would be brought round and she'd get in the back with the food wrapped in shawls and be driven to the next. I mean, they're not very far away, but far enough away that if you've got an enormous pot of stew, it's a little problematic in the blackout with rubble everywhere. So they were onerous conditions and she didn't have much help either. She had one kitchen maid, possibly two kitchen maids, uh, to turn out meals, not just for Winston and Clementine Churchill, but also for their daughter when she was visiting. She was stationed in Hyde Park, that's Mary Soames as became. Then they've got their other children who popped in, plus you've got any visiting dignitaries. The Churchills entertained pretty much every night. And then the King would come over on Tuesdays for lunch as well. So she's really having to cater everything from a breakfast, which is usually porridge, peaches, honey, toast, eggs, not very rationed, all the way up to quite interesting and quite illustrious banquets. And what sources have you got? Because you don't have the autobiography. Uh, do you, are there interviews with her? Are there accounts that she left? Or are there, are there menus left in the archives? What, how, how do you get to grips with Georgina? An awful lot of very small sources, I would say. It really was sort of CSI history, this one. I naively went into it thinking, oh, there'll be loads. She worked for Churchill. There's an enormous archive in Cambridge. It'll be dead easy. Not really. The archive tends to privilege uh, documents which I suspect the Churchills thought would be interesting to future historians. So it tends to be things like speeches written out in triplicate with changes and then typed up. So you've got every single word of every single speech, but you don't have the menu books that would have been there that should survive. So there's a, there are gaps in the archive which I think are interesting in and of themselves. 
So for Georgina's life with the Churchills, there's a couple of menu books. There's one from 1937, which is fantastic because you can see their normal cook's writing, which is very unformed, and you can see what the cook is cooking, which is baked beans on toast and steak and kidney pudding and quite sort of plebeian English dishes. And then all of a sudden Georgina will appear for a weekend with this glorious flowing copper plate, and it will be oeuf écarlate and gigot d'agneau and everything in French. And then she'll disappear again and you'll have unrelenting kind of British dishes. There are then some menu books for the post-war period. So you've got menu books for the servants uh, and a few for the household, but it's quite difficult to compare because they don't always join up. And also one of them is written partly in German, which was slightly confusing when I found it, but it turns out they employed Austrian and Swiss au pairs, as one does when one doesn't have any money, it appears. Um, then you've got some anecdotal evidence from people that went to Downing Street and ate with Georgina. So there are various politicians or um, dignitaries that visit church and then say, oh, we had this for dinner. Mary Soames's diaries, they are a joy, an absolute joy to read. She was a teenager when the war broke up and joined up and was stationed just opposite Downing Street. And her diaries are everything you'd imagine a teenager's diaries to be. So it's a real mixture of, I'm so depressed, the war is awful, absolutely terrible to I'm in love and I've just got engaged and it's amazing and I've got an incredible new hat. And she does give lists of what she ate, both in terms of at the barracks and also when she's with her mother and father. So they are, they were just one of the most beautiful sources to read that I can describe. Um, so it really is kind of a real mixture of lots of things. There are some um, ledgers that give supplies. So there are some bills and things like that for the army and navy stores, but it really is teeny, 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 tiny little bits of information that you then have to extrapolate along with the background of her wider life. Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. How informal is, is life when you have a cook? 
uh, are they are they are you on first name terms? Are you there? Are you discussing menus? Are you are you friends? How how does it how intimate was she with with the family? Well, I think changed quite a lot over her lifetime and over the time she was with them. She was known to the family as Mrs. Marr rather than Mrs. Landemar, and that was a sort of for the time a relatively cosy honorific that was given to her and people would go down to the kitchen visiting dignitaries whoever it was would go down to the kitchen and thank her for dinner not least because she'd worked for an awful lot of them in her time as a jobbing cook the children certainly knew her as a very very close family retainer I would hesitate to use the word friend um, Eddie, Georgina's granddaughter, certainly thinks that Clementine and Georgina were friends. But of course, there's always that gulf of class between them. So Clementine, later on, once Churchill had died, uh, and even before then, actually, used to go and visit Georgina sort of every week or every other week, and her car would draw up outside this little house in Stanmore and actually get, and they'd have tea and chocolate cake together, and she'd get back in and drive off. But Clementine always had staff with her. She always had a, a PA with her. And there was always that gap between employer and employee. So they were very, very close, Georgina and Clementine. And they were, I would say, as friendly as it is possible to be when one party is paying the other party's pension. Uh, and where you've always got that gap of class and education and knowledge. But Clementine was a very interesting figure and very lonely, I think, as well, towards the end of her life. And certainly she treated her secretaries almost as quasi-children. And there were stories of her wandering down in her nightie to go and watch TV with her secretaries and things like that. So those lines did get very, very blurred. Well, we hear about Churchill wandering around in less than a nightie. Oh, yes, no, wandering around in absolutely nothing. I mean, my goodness me, if it wasn't for the fact he was Churchill, he'd have probably been arrested and put out somewhere. Um, it's absolutely hilarious. Georgina used to take him his breakfast, so regularly got views of this enormous man sort of running around without any clothes on because he used to have his bath and then wander back to his bedroom and there are tales of his ballot running after him with a towel. So Winston, Sir Winston, put this around you. Uh, so, yeah, I, she definitely got an eyeful, is, uh, is all I can say. In terms of the food and the diplomacy, I mean, what, what are some of the... Um, are you able to identify certain meals, whether great moments with foreign dignitaries or whatever, that, that Churchill and Georgina worked together to try and uh, create the perfect evening? There are and there aren't. The menus are scarce. There's a couple of menus from royal luncheons. So when George V came over, there are a few where they are listed. Um, and they're certainly muted compared to earlier dinners, but they're still all in French. And there is no hint that there is much scarcity. Um, plover's eggs come up. Surprising regularity, but then plover's eggs were not rationed because you weirdly couldn't guarantee the supply of a plover's egg. Um, so those, those come up quite a lot, along with things like sea kale, which was a very Edwardian vegetable that most people in Britain wouldn't have been eating by that point, um, but would have been growing at Chartwell, so it would have been quite easy to get hold of. Churchill himself didn't have much of a role in the menu planning. He left most of that to Clementine, who was masterful at putting on a show. So after the Downing Street bomb, they sort of moved the dining room downstairs to what was not a very well-protected bunker, but at least it formed a little bit of protection. And apparently it did look quite like a bunker because it was quite sort of low and there weren't any windows. And she had the whole thing decorated and with creative use of flowers and a chintzy scheme was able to set dress this room so that it felt quite cosy. So it was Clementine Churchill that sat down on a daily basis with Georgina and went through the menu for every single day and would correct. Um, it, you can see this in some of the earlier menu books. Georgina will write a menu down and Clementine will say, actually, let's try a, a shoulder of lamb instead of a leg, for example. Um, Clementine also had quite a significant recipe book collection and you can identify just a few of those recipe books from the early ledgers. 
because she will put references in. So she'll say GF287, which once you've stared at it for a while, you work out means Ambrose Heath's Good Food, page 287. So you can put together a collection of Clementine's books from the notes that she's put in the corner. So very much it was her and Georgina sitting down together to put together the menu and then Clementine masterminding everything else that went into it. So the wines, the decor, the tablecloth, even the company on occasion, and of course the seating plan, which was very important. Uh, when you go into the cabinet war rooms, under London, you see a little sort of sparse, Spartan room that Churchill actually didn't stay in very often. No, I think three times. Right, so he was usually upstairs with the good food and the nice surroundings, wasn't Yes, it? he decided that being in a bunker really wasn't the image he wanted to put across because he needed to be seen to be out there. Also, because the annex existed after 1940, it was quite safe. It wasn't quite as safe as the cabinet war rooms, but, you know, the cabinet war rooms wouldn't have survived a direct hit anyway, so it's a kind of a moot point. There is a kitchen at the cabinet war rooms, and if you go around it today, you'll see some of Georgina's battery de cuisine there because her granddaughter donated some of it to the Churchill war rooms. So some of the copper pans that you see were Georgina's. There's a wooden tray that she was given either by Churchill or by Frank Sawyers, who was Churchill's valet. So there's just a few little reminders of Georgina there. But she probably never cooked in that kitchen, or if she did, it was a, a boiled egg or boiling some tea, something like that. You do get a sense of place, I think, from it, because the kitchen upstairs in the annex would have been relatively similar. So it would have had electricity rather than gas, which obviously is slightly problematic if there are bombs falling. And it was a very, very small space as well. There's a ladies loo in the annex now where I suspect the kitchen was. And I've been round it banging on the walls trying to work out where the hollow bits were, which slightly shocked the cleaner, I think. But, um, you know, you just you kind of want to do these things, don't you? And did she accompany, because Churchill was so well-travelled as Prime Minister, or unprecedented at the time, did she go with him on any of these trips? No, she didn't. When he went to France to recover after the war, he tended to take a furnished house with its own staff. And during the war, he was usually being put up by whoever he was visiting. So he'd normally get the train to wherever he was embarking if he was going by sea somewhere. She would provide the soup for the voyage. He was absolutely addicted to soup. It was one of his really big obsessions. So she would send thermoses with him of both cold and hot soup. So he could have hot soup whenever he wanted to and, and cold soup he would have before bed every night. So it's a cold jellied soup cut up into pieces. It sounds extraordinarily bad, but uh, he found it really helped him to sleep. So that would go with him. But other than that, once he then got on board a ship, it would be catered for by the Navy and then he'd swap over to um, whichever ship he was getting to in the middle of the ocean and then it would be catered for by the Americans. And when they went to the White House, it was catered by Eleanor Roosevelt's extraordinarily awful cook, Mrs Nesbitt, who was renowned for the just horrific nature of her food. Um, and of course, when they were abroad as well, the English were very, very conscious of the fact they needed to put on a show. So there were lots and lots of anecdotes of them eating and then eating again and then eating for Eng literally for England because they need to be seen to be these kind of really hardcore heavyweight Brits. And Churchill was certainly no exception to that. Uh, there are lots of reports of his breakfasts, particularly while travelling, which don't quite coincide with what he was eating when he was back in the UK. So I think there was a level of kind of creating his own image that went out when he was travelling abroad. And so at the end of it all, how close were you able to get to Georgina? Do you know what she made of it all? Do you know, what, were you able to, what she really felt about the Churchills? Yes uh, her place no, in, her, I would her say. Her role that she played in the war? Um, yes, to some extent. There is an interview with her, which is still online actually, that the BBC did in the 1970s with Joan Bakewell, when she was in her early 90s. And you do get 
I mean, it's just lovely to hear her voice. It's very rare as a historian to, to hear someone, to hear their intonations and to see them. And the only point in that interview where she's visibly upset is where she talks about Churchill being uh, put out of office in, the, in 1945. Oh, it was the soldiers, you see, it was the soldiers. And you think, well, it wasn't just the soldiers, but you, you do get this sense of unerring loyalty. She would never tell stories about the Churchills. Um, very later in life, when she was in the geriatric ward, after a few sherries, apparently, she would tell a few stories, but not very many. So I think it is possible to get quite close to Georgina. But when I wrote the book, I wanted to do more than just tell her story as well anyway. I mean, I wanted to look at her because I think she's a fantastic character and one who is overlooked in nearly every book about Churchill. And yet she was so crucial that had the Germans invaded, she would have been taken away with him, one of only 11 people named in a document in 1940. So she really was a, a really brilliant figure. But I also wanted to look at domestic service and what it was like to be a servant at a very, very high level and as well to chart the course really of 20th century food. So to some extent, where I haven't been able to get to grips with Georgina, for example, in the early part of her marriage, she was married, she had children, I know the bare bones, but there's nothing that survives from that point. You can still recreate what it would have been like to be her to a large extent by looking at the stories attached to other people and by what we know is happening more generally. And the food is endlessly fascinating as well. So it's quite a nice thing to be able to say, well, this is this woman's life. She's fantastic. But also look at these glorious things that surrounded her, the food, life in service. Isn't it brilliant to actually put all that together and revalue both a woman, but also a, a type of person, I suppose, as well. Did she get any days off? Yes, she did. Uh, she, well, when she was younger, she would have had a half day every two weeks. As it went over, she would have got more er erratic days off because she was working for herself. With the Churchills, she did get a day off, either a half day or a day. I'm not quite sure which one because it's not written down. And she got, as well, holidays. So her family lived in Bristol, her daughter and her grandchildren. And she would go off and visit them for a couple of weeks a year and also at Christmas, at which point the kitchen maid would have to take over. So, yes, she did get holidays. She also took, I think, two weeks off directly after VE Day because everyone was absolutely knackered. So there was this real sense of, OK, great, we've won. I just want to sleep. So at that point, she took two weeks off as well. She deserved it. And last thing is, did she eat well? Yes. Uh, nearly everybody who talks about her describes her as rotund. Uh, she put that down to all the cream soups that she was preparing. But it turned out that she had uh, a medical condition, which was probably why she put on lots of weight. Uh, and later in life, after she'd retired, the Churchill had paid for her to go to Harley Street to see a specialist. He'd put her on lots of pills. And she went to go and see a new NHS doctor. He said, you don't need all of this rubbish. Come off those. And she lost nearly all the weight that she put on and became a really sort of quite slender, tiny little white-haired old lady. So, um, but yes, she certainly did eat well. Well, anyway, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. The book is Victory in the Kitchen. Good luck with it. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, a bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review, I'd really appreciate that. It's tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And uh, I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.